Welcome to Battle Rhythm, a podcast dedicated to security and defense issues from a Canadian and international perspective. I'm Steve Sadman. I hold the Patterson Chair in International Affairs at Carleton University. I'm also Director of the Canadian Defense and Security Network. Battle Rhythm is a part of the Canadian Defense and Security Network's podcast network, available on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and all the usual places to get your podcasts. Please join us every two weeks for our new episodes of Battle Rhythm, and also check out the other podcasts in our network. Uh, you can find them, again, on our website or at the CDSN Podcast Network on your favorite podcast provider. And before we start, we should acknowledge that our podcast is produced at Carleton University, which is located in unceded Algonquin Territory, which is home to the Anishinaabe Nation. Thank you. Welcome back to Battle Rhythm. Today we have as our co-host Lena Tamsito, who we can now announce is going to be an assistant professor at the University of Toronto starting July 1st. Congratulations, Lena. Thank you, Steve. Very excited. Department of Occupational Science and Occupational Therapy. So going back to my roots. Excellent. That's terrific. That is the quest. And you had a, a more challenging quest because you didn't want to leave your Toronto and I always say the best way to end your academic career is to insist on only being in one spot, but it worked out for you. So congratulations. I'm really, really happy for you. Thank you so much. Um, and the really exciting part is that I get to continue doing this kind of work. So went into the interview, let them know that I am really passionate about work in you know, military and veterans and families and everything related to it. And they were keen on it. So yeah, we'll be doing this work at the University of Toronto. That's fantastic. And that will give you access to lots of undergrads. And this is the season for us to get undergrads around the country to apply for yes. our undergraduate excellence scholarship, which is for trying to get people from less well-represented communities into the defense and security sphere. So ne next year, you'll be in a great position to identify students who should apply for a fellowship. And the University of Toronto is the perfect place for that. Yes, it's large. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so we're very happy for you. Thank you. As we were preparing for this week's podcast, we realized there was a document that dropped that didn't make a whole lot of noise. And so we wanted to talk about it a little bit. That yeah. In the aftermath of the Louise Arbor report uh, effort where she reviewed the, the military, one of the things that she complained about was there wasn't enough follow-up, that lots of recommendations have been made, but nobody was tracking them. So one of her 48 recommendations was to create an external monitor and that person would be have the responsibility for reporting to the minister and to the public on progress. So a couple of weeks ago, the first report dropped. I want to say the it is Jocelyn Theron. Therian, uh, yeah. Therian. And so you've been following this issue. What's your assessment of the report itself? Well, before we even get to the report itself, I think it's interesting how you and I sort of stumbled upon the report. It just sort of through a, a chain of emails to various networks I'm, I'm a part of, this arrived in my inbox in the middle of the weekend. So this was not something that had been, that you or I had noticed in the media. So it, I think that says a lot about the issue, about the topic. Um, you and I talked before we started recording about, yeah, there was nothing sort of controversial about it, but given how important the topic is and how much press it got, 
you know, a year ago for the past two years, it was interesting that it didn't show up on either one of our radars. So this report came through one of the networks I'm a part of, and it was pretty supportive of the work that's been done so far. But I think it was interesting, as uh, as I was saying, that it didn't really make a blip. And, and I think there was only one media outlet that actually highlighted the fact that it was a report that was released and it was released um, made public May 17th. So, I mean, it wasn't something that happened yesterday. So it's been out there for about a, a week or so. And I think that you, you, in your discussion, raised a couple different pieces to the puzzle. One is maybe there's exhaustion that, that the media is tired of covering this issue, that uh, they've moved on other things. The second piece of it is that it's a pretty positive report. And mm-hmm. we're going to get into whether it should be or not in a second. But that is a very positive report means that the media is not interested in it because if it bleeds, it leads. If it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. And so since it doesn't accuse Anita Anand or Wayne Eyre or other officials of, of not being serious, it doesn't really play. Which is unfortunate because it's still a really important issue for a lot of people. Um, and again, it does speak to the larger issues of, of the need for culture change. So yeah, you're right. Overall, the, the report was pretty positive. A lot of things are still early stages. So I think the general gist of the report is that there are a lot of things that are on the go. There's not a lot of concrete things that can be reported at this time because they're still getting committees together, identifying stakeholders, taking a look at the systemic possible barriers and sort of the the lay of the land to figure out how they will go about implementing these recommendations. The one thing that I did notice is that there was a real emphasis on the fact that there's no actual strategic plan on how to to move forward. There's a, a lot of effort. A lot of people are doing a lot of great work, but there still is not a a concrete plan on how to to move things forward and how they'll they'll track it. So, you know, it it seems to be something that needs to be uh, attended to quite quickly in order to track, you know, the well, path forward. Yeah, let's get into the to the review itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, what aspects of it got your attention that you were either surprised at the progress or surprised at the lack of progress? Sure. The one thing that I actually I think is quite relevant to the work that I'm doing was under the section of input and oversight under academics and research. Now, this is particularly interesting to me because I'm currently dealing with this issue right now um, in the capacity of the work that I'm doing at McMaster. So what we're doing is that we're going to be launching a couple of research studies where we've decided we're going to involve both uh, speaking to veterans and uh, active serving members about their experiences, different aspects of of military sexual trauma and misconduct. So what is required from academic institutions is that we go through our ethics board, of course, but because we are also engaging active serving members, we also have to go through the ethics board that's connected to Department of Defense. So in the past, it's been quite a laborious process. We have to go through our ethics board and then submit our completed ethics to the ethics board with connected to the uh, Department of Defense. The challenge is, is if the SSRB, the, the ethics board connected to defense, has issues and needs changes, then we have to go back to our institutional ethics board. So it becomes this really, really long process. As a result, it takes a really long time to get anything off the ground. So one of the recommendations that was made is that there needs to be a better process for researchers external to Department of Defense to be able to participate and engage in research that involves active service members. 
So there were some, you know, recommendations that were made. Um, and in particular, what was interesting is that they are currently reviewing the policy about ethics approval for externals such as myself. And they are hoping to allow current review as opposed to having institutions going into the SSRB for, for the happening for us, for our team at McMaster. Uh, however, there are still some concerns where there is going to be sort of yeah, and experiencing some back and forth already, where we've gotten some feedback from SSRB. And, and another challenge with that is that we need to identify an internal sponsor. So this is an individual to help us navigate the military system, to get us connected to the right people, to you know get approvals and help with recruitment. Um, and that is a, a challenge within itself, because we also want to the, the perspective is that we want to do research, but we also don't want to get in the way, so to speak. So there are processes that seem to have shifted since the last time I sought out SSRB a couple of years ago, but I can still, I can see that there are going to be ongoing logistical challenges. So that in particular was of interest to me just because I'm I'm living that right now. Mm-hmm. I guess my first reaction to it was I, I was surprised at how positive it was because it wasn't that long ago that Louise Arbor, you know, expressed her displeasure about how little progress there is being made. So is it that that Arbor was expecting too much or was there a lot of progress made over the past several months? Or is it that this this external monitor has lower expectations? Oh, that's an interesting perspective. So yeah, I, I don't really know. I don't really know how to how to weigh the different takes on this. Being connected to this area of work, I am seeing a lot of things happening yeah. opposed to before the Arbor report. Yeah, no, but there's certainly work that's happened since Arbor report. And I mean, there's been a lot of work ever since Arbor was given the job of doing the report mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. Anand Air Carignan, who's the head of CPC, the, the, the chief of professional culture and conduct or professional conduct and culture. Um, they're doing a lot of work and I think they're very sincere about it. However, you know, we still don't have a committee struck to review the Royal Military College. Yeah, yeah. As I tweeted yesterday, this is, or two days ago, this is the easiest thing you can do. You don't have to make a decision to do anything. You just have to make, you know, have a committee, announce, you know, who's on the committee, and then have them start. And whenever they produce the results, they produce the results, right? So that still hasn't happened. Port says it's going to happen in June. June, but- yep. Yeah, you know, so June's not a, not that long from now, but no. you know we'll see it when we see it. I believe it when we see it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's one thing. I think the other thing that's very frustrating is, and there's some language in the in the report, but it, there's not enough discussion of it. Is mm-hmm. how much of this stuff requires new legislation, and if it requires right. new legislation, how much effort has there been made to actually write that legislation and get it into the process? And what I keep on asking or yammering about is for them to go through all 48 recommendations and identify which ones require legislation, which ones require more money, which ones require, you know, what is the big obstacle to each one of these recommendations so that we know what's in the way and how to overcome them. And if it requires legislation, you know, the the report came out last spring. So why hasn't there been draft legislation either being vetted by parliamentarians or at least being circulated in town so that we know what the legislation is going to look like so we're making progress? And I, I just don't know anything at all about what's going on with that. I don't understand. Why yeah, this- I get the sense from this external report that they've identified that this is going to be a barrier, but it doesn't seem to have a plan laid out on on how they even are going to identify what legislation needs to be changed and what that process might look like. Exactly. We don't know 
what the sequencing of this stuff is, right? That was what the what you were talking mm -hmm. about there. There's no strategy, yeah. which is what are the things that they're trying to do? Are they just trying to do whatever's easiest, fastest, and putting off the things that are hard? Are the hard things going on, but we don't we can't measure progress because they're hard. Right. So it would be good to have a little clarity about, okay, here's all the 48 recommendations and here's what we're doing on each one of them. Here's the plan for how we're going to approach them. So I think that's a challenge. On the other hand, I went through and identified all the things that were mentioned and, you know, I put a little, I played around with the emoji. So I have little green check marks and a little red, <laughs> red questions. And it seems like a lot of, a lot of things have been made, you know, that, that they're, they're, yeah. they're now surveying the people at the RMC. There's now, they changed the name of the SMRC to the SMSRC and yeah. they're covering the legal costs or going to try to cover the yeah. legal costs for survivors. It could be clear about what efforts are being made on prevention. Uh, you know, that gets to one of the things they did talk about, which is they can't have a probationary or develop this probationary period that Arbor recommended for new entrants into the military because that would require new legislation. So they've required, they've developed a workaround. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or how to, get rid of, how to get rid of people who are problematic. And on Twitter, I got some pushback about how that that's a really hard process and it's, they need, they need to do better than that, but at least they're doing that. There's at least some sense of trying to get rid of people who are problematic before they get deep into the military. Well, so I, I find that I, that, that was one of my, you know, not green check marks with the, you know, the red X's that you're talking about was mm -hmm. how do they, there was a statement that the CAF is, quote, the, the CAF is currently reviewing a range of assessment tools that will support this, including the methods that are backed by research, end quote. To me, it's like, what are we assessing and screening for, mm -hmm. right? And again, I think it goes back to what we were, what you had just said and what you and I've talked about in previous podcasts is that we need some sort of clearly laid out roadmap. So Canadians can follow along, people like me that are interested to track, like what is being done? Like what are the actual steps or even questions, right? Instead of, you know, you know, this report is helpful, but it again, it sort of got buried, buried away. So I mean, I'm I'm curious about, you know, what they're they're assessing and screening for. So problematic people, like, are we? I don't I, I don't understand what that means. Are we looking to look at people's past, their criminal past? Are they going to be measuring their attitudes and behaviors? Like to me, that just seems really vague. How do we determine who's in, who's out? Yeah, if they're saying, well, we're getting rid of people who in the process of enrolling in the military they we find out that they're saying things that are racist homophobic misogynist whatever that'd be that'd be useful information to have yeah but does that mean is there some sort of screening tool that's scientifically backed or are we going to go onto people's twitter or facebook yeah. and investigate you know, like what, 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 yeah what gets people kicked out that's, that's yes right. what's the yeah essentially yeah so there'd be more clarity about that what are there other parts of the report that you either saw as either good or bad or uh, um, one thing that that i didn't again one of those few things that sort of has happened and, and hasn't been a blip on my radar is the actual funding of community projects so the um smsrc has funded 32 community projects that provide a range of counseling and therapy um, services to people who have been historically underserved and who've experienced military sexual misconduct and, mm -hmm. and trauma. So I thought that was really interesting because one of the projects that we've been doing at McMaster is identifying how well equipped sexual assault centers are at supporting military members and veterans who've experienced mm -hmm. um, sexual misconduct. And you know, there's not a heck of a lot out there, but it was interesting to see that the SMSRC has identified, you know, 32 projects that have indicated that they are, are servicing in military with regard to this experience. So um, I'm interested to see 
you know, how that comes out, because I'm really big on, you know, knowledge translation and cultural competency and how well institutions and organizations in the community are at supporting these very specific needs. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was interesting to to include in the report. And again, it was one of those things that it, things got funded and I actually didn't know about that. I did, I recall the call out last summer, but hadn't heard anything mm-hmm. else. Yeah, I, a lot of this gets back to the biggest challenge of all, which is, you know, the report says there's a palpable change in the air, but you talk to other people, they say that they're not seeing much change. And, mm-hmm. and so it's, you know, in my interactions, I, I, I definitely think there's a sincere effort being made on the part of the leadership and of CPCC and yeah. of these other yeah. entities to make changes. But, you know, it's like when you grade a student, they say, well, I worked really hard in the paper and the paper's crap, right? It can work really hard and not, and have a, you know, a, a smart person do the work, but somehow yes. the, the work doesn't translate to right. the actual outcome. And so it's the challenge here is I'm not saying that the work is crap in this case. I'm just saying that a lot of people work really hard can make a difference, but it's hard to say how much of a difference is being made. Our perceptions really changing. Mm-hmm. Um, perceptions aren't reality, but they're related to reality. Are there fewer incidents of sexual misconduct, fewer incidents of sexual assault? You know, what are the trends in the actual behavior of people within the military? Yeah. And that, you know, that's going to be hard because if we're changing how things are measured, then it's going to be hard to compare this this year's statistics to last year's statistics. People maybe feel more freer to report, so you get more reports. Yeah, absolutely. Making more progress or less progress. So it's, it's a very difficult thing to evaluate. And so I think the the report is useful in looking at a series of efforts and evaluating how the efforts are going. But these are all ultimately input measures, and we don't really know what the outcomes are yet. But I do think this is a useful exercise. I'm just sorry that people aren't really paying attention to it. I guess for some relevant audiences are, I'm sure the ministers are paying attention yeah. to it. People like you are paying attention to it. So that's good. Well, I mean, I would pay attention to it if it was sort of more broadly discussed in the wider media things. It's again, there was one news report and it just happened to get to my inbox through one of the networks that I'm a part of. So, I mean, in terms of you described it perfectly that these are input measures at this point, we're still in early days, Yeah, you know, given the type of changes that we need to see. So I guess, you know, when we reconvene a few years down the road and reassess and reevaluate, maybe we can we can actually see the needle moving. So I don't know. Did you have any other comments or thoughts about the report? No, I think uh, I think we can move on to the second topic that we wanted to address this week, which is one of the issues that's come out has been that the government is now going to name foreign labs universities that pose risks to national security. Mm-hmm. And so as we are university researchers, does this concern you? I just think it's interesting. Again, I'm fairly new to this. And it just, when I think about, so the, the, the story came out of the Toronto star. It was reported, I think last week or the week before that the government has announced, the government of Canada has announced that they are creating a list of universities and labs and research institutions of uh, a list of foreign universities, labs and research institutes, institutions that may pose a, a potential risk for national security. And this, I think, has really come out of foreign interference and all that that has been um, very much on the Canadian government's radar of recent. So I thought, you know, I'm, I'm fairly new to the, the university game and how <laughs> funding works and that sort of thing. So I found it a, a, a particular interest, not to say that the work that I do may necessarily, it tends to be more the, the, the you know, artificial intelligence, tech, that sort of uh, very sciencey stuff that draws the attention of a, a lot of, uh, you know, 
international university co collaboration. But nevertheless, with regards to university funding, you know, I both know that it's, you know, we, we do what we can to try to get funding. Um, but quite often, it seems that a lot of these private companies that come to, to Canada hoping to, to utilize our Canadian brain power to do research, there are asterisks and caveats. And, and my understanding is that there are potential for national security risks because of various foreign companies and, and labs and universities. So I thought it was particularly interesting. University of Waterloo has recently cut ties with Huawei, the Chinese tech company. And I'm just sort of seeing that this might be the start of something. And, you know, when that happens, we know that the Chinese don't, the, uh, the, the, the People's Republic of China don't tend to sit on things like this too well. So there's going to be possible retaliation we've seen with the, uh, the diplomats. So it'll be interesting to see how this, once the list comes out, how the universities respond and how international partners might respond. And whether or not other countries that are similar to Canada, like, you know, the US and Germany, Great Britain, if they maybe follow suit. I don't know. There's a lot of questions and I'm just sort of watching this uh, with a lot of interest. Yeah, it's a tricky realm because it, it's always been the case that authoritarian countries have tried to penetrate democratic countries, uh, mm -hmm. universities and other sectors to, to get scientific uh, knowledge that might help them in a variety of ways. And... The fact is, these days, China is been seen as, as engaging in a variety of efforts to steal technology mm -hmm. and also to engage in disinformation campaigns in, in Canada. There was a report today I saw that Canada that there are like 170 plus Chinese diplomats in, in Canada, which is an astonishing number compared to what other countries have. Right. But, you know, the, that China has had a concerted effort to coerce Canadians, both government to government and from China, the Chinese government to the Chinese diaspora in Canada and that universities, you know, that they're the Confucius Institutes, which have been in a, an effort by China to create research centers in Canada, may be not just research centers, but centers of information, disinformation campaigns. So the question is, who do you invite to give talks? Who do you invite to be research partners? Uh, it's not really aimed at, at, social scientists uh this this mm -hmm. new uh, this the government thing about limiting who we can play with it's more aimed at the hard sciences because there's a fear yes. that, that that our hard sciences our technology is going to be used to to support the chinese military and so i think that's a real fear but our job as professors is to generate knowledge and to share it that's that's basically our job and mm -hmm. to any restraint on our sharing you know, we resist because we want to get the knowledge out, feel it's we're creating a public good and, and that that people are better off being less ignorant than more ignorant. So there's a basically a contradiction between our values uh, and what might be in Canada's interests in its competition conflict with with particularly right. China. And so that's going to be a challenge to have government regulate more closely who we get to play with, who we get to research with, because... You know, there are Chinese scholars who, you know, are producing interesting and important uh, breakthroughs. And do we isolate ourselves from them or do we partner with them? And then the question then becomes whether the knowledge that we gain can be weaponized against us, mm -hmm, weaponized mm -hmm. against other people. So these are real issues with really challenging trade-offs. It's just not a simply a matter of things of saying, hey, we just cut all, cut all this off or not. You know, it's it, it's... This is not an easy decision to make. And, you know, as you suggested with the previous topic, 
you know, what counts, what doesn't count. These are all things that need to be clarified. Well, I would like to think that there are also, you know, researchers and professors from these other foreign institutions who also want to play with us in the sandbox, right? Who don't necessarily agree with how their positions are taken advantage of by whatever regime they are, you know, working within. So, you know, just looking at, thinking on the, the flip side of this situation is that, you know, what happens to them, right? They won't have an opportunity to collaborate internationally as well. And, and again, I, I like to think that there's probably more folks that think like us that want to, to share knowledge and create knowledge together than there are to, to use it for, you know, not so nice purposes. Mm, yeah. Well, uh, we're going to leave that here for now. I do want to mention that we have Basma Mamani, who's a friend of, of the CDSN. She uh, previously led one of the Minds Networks and is a professor at Waterloo and is one of the smartest folks on Canadian foreign policy mm -hmm. in Canada's role mm -hmm. in the world, as well as being a specialist in the Middle East. So I talked for, with her for quite a bit of time uh, a couple of weeks ago. And so that's our next segment. Uh, Lena, it's always a pleasure to hang out with you. Same. So happy that you'll be able to hang out with us. I'm your new so happy title, to be able to hang out. <laughs> your new title starting uh, in a little more than a month. Yeah. Um, look forward to hang out with you the next time we have an event that brings you to Ottawa or that brings us to Toronto. That would be great. And I, you know, do want to acknowledge, you know, the great work that I'm sadly leaving behind at uh, at McMaster in the Trauma and Recovery Research Lab uh, under the leadership of Dr. Margaret McKinnon. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm leaving the work, still going to be supporting however I can. A great team there. And yeah, grateful for the opportunity that I had uh, the past few years with them. Well, I'm, I'm sure they benefited greatly from from your time. We're still very proud of, of that you are our first CDSM postdoc. That was I'm so proud of that too. <laughs> that, that, that's really paid off for us, not only getting a great co-host, but also someone who's doing great work. And Thank you. And you're going to be able to stick around in this community. Absolutely. Have a great week and we'll chat soon. Thank you. So today in Battle Rhythm, we have Basma Momani. She is what they would call a baseball five tools player. She's got research interests across the board from Canadian defense and foreign policy to her traditional expertise in the Middle East. She's been a director of a, a, a mines network and often consulted by the media and the government on foreign policy issues. And lately she's been dabbling in misinformation. No, she hasn't been creating misinformation, or at least not that I know of, but she's been studying the spread of misinformation and disinformation uh, in Canada. So we thought we'd bring her on and have her uh, tell us what she's been working on. So Basma, welcome to Battle Rhythm. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. And I promise you, I don't spread disinformation or misinformation. We'll be the judges of that, shan't we? Yes. So uh, you gave a talk at the CANIS, that is the Canadian uh, Network on Information Security, uh, last month, now two months ago, I guess, on misinformation, disinformation spread through chat apps. And we don't usually talk about chat apps, so uh, we thought we'd have you talk about this. What got you into studying this and what did you find? Yeah, so I think like, you know, maybe not all scholars, but certainly for me, what I see in my real life often motivates uh, looking into uh, research questions. And I guess I'm in a number of WhatsApp groups with from family members to, you know, just 
you know, everything from ladies groups to, you know, community groups, even my street created a WhatsApp group. And at times I just kept getting a lot of really weird stuff forwarded to me. It was at a time when there was a lot of um, very interesting conversations about obviously disinformation on social media. And of course, places like Twitter and Facebook, they're open. You can see what people are tweeting and saying, at least most people. But what's really interesting about WhatsApp groups and what are small chat groups, so you know, WeChat is part of that, Signal, Telegram, is that they're often group environments that have a lot of you know members potentially and it's a place where people really lean on it to get information and i was particularly interested in that a lot of the information i got was especially sort of family groups was very junky oftentimes you know if it's an older person in the family i'm not going to respond back and say you know by the way this is bs so there's a bit of deference in these groups too to sort of correcting and, you know, we've learned a lot about disinformation and, and the role of, you know, digital literacy and, you know, the value of counter messaging and the rest and content moderators. But in all of these private spaces like WeChat and WhatsApp and the rest, there's no such thing. And so it really kind of uh, piqued my interest. And I also found that a lot of friends who have relatives and family abroad tend to be more reliant on things mm-hmm. like WhatsApp which really also piqued my interest that this was, and I saw some great work done by folks at TMU, Joe Masudi and Sam Andre, on the prevalence of these chat groups, more so amongst ethnocultural communities um, than, you know, the average Canadian. And that's partly because, and, and, you know, I don't really know why, you know, in the Middle East, uh, when I travel there, people ask me for my WhatsApp number, they don't ask for anything else. They don't ask for your email, they don't ask for you know, certainly don't ask for your phone number. It's really about your WhatsApp number. And, and that's how you get everything from, I would, if I would give a guest lecture, I wouldn't get a message from an organizer telling me the location other than on WhatsApp. And so like, it is the mode of communication for a lot of people. And it really is prevalent in a lot of foreign contexts because they don't have unlimited SMS data plans. Mm-hmm. And so they're reliant on Wi-Fi, which is more unlimited. And so it's just the, by virtue of the reality that a lot of developing countries will be using that because it's a lot cheaper for people than to have an unlimited data plan. So that piqued my interest. And I uh, worked with a postdoc fellow of mine, Shelly Guy Bajaj, and um, she's of Indian origin herself. And, and we shared kind of conversations about this. I'd actually applied for the grant before I had a chance to meet with her, but it just kind of peaked after I got the grant and hired her. And, and you know, we kind of share a lot of stories about, you know, we were all stuck in these WhatsApp groups, often with a great deal of deference to older family members. And again, no one's self, no one's correcting and there's no content moderators. So it seemed ripe. Um, and so we investigated, our grant was to take a look at these chat groups. And we did a very novel methodology working with ethnocultural community groups themselves, which was really important to um, not only ensure privacy, but to make sure that it's as ethical as possible in the research design. And so we worked with um, major Canadian community, ethnic cultural community groups, and ask them to give us names of people who have very large uh, social group, people that they know that run WhatsApp groups, or more importantly, people who have a, just a strong digital footprint 
um, who might be interested. And they acted as what we called interlocutors. They literally took notes of the kinds of messaging. Mm -hmm. So it was a code book. We took that code book and then ran it through other people so that they don't connect it to the source. No names were shared, but it gave us a really interesting sense of the types of information, the themes that we saw move from within certain cultural communities. And we had about, I'd say, 30 interlocutors across four or five groups. And um, yeah, the findings were really interesting. And so what did you find? Yeah, I need you to ask the next question because I've been talking nonstop there. See? No, that, was, that was all good. Um, so, you know, temporally, of course, it's important here because in the Chinese Canadian community, which was really interesting, there was at the time, and our study started in December 2022, I want to say, till March 2023. I hope I got those timelines. I have to say COVID just created a blur in terms of years, mm -hmm. but I think years. But it was certainly before the major lockdowns in China, uh, things were actually opening up. And actually the misinformation that we got from the, in the Chinese Canadian community was about how wonderful China was managing this epidemic. And, you know, that everything is their uh, method of, of COVID control was, was so great. And vaccines are not that important if you have, you know, a good state society, a lot of kind of moralizing about Chinese culture, about how they care other people, you know, again, so a lot of, again, there's, you know, some certainly some truth to that. And, you know, one can't say that all disinformation is disingenuous. No, actually, you can't say that misinformation is can't be disingenuous or have malicious intent, but disinformation malicious, yeah. has malicious intent. But we were interested in that when we did some kind of searching of some of the messaging, uh, we saw that, of course, they did have strong state narrative bias, they were absolutely, oftentimes traced back to articles that, you know, came from the Chinese official press. So it's it's finding its way into Canada is what I think was really quite interesting. And uh, it's often, of course, uh, picked up by, you know, in other disinformation groups. So you might find similar messaging in Twitter and Facebook and back and forth. But the the virality of it all, I think, in, in WhatsApp groups, particularly the fact that we don't see the counter messaging and the content moderation, I think really stands out to me as a as a real issue of concern. I was just say content moderation. Have you been on Twitter lately? Yeah, right. Yeah, no kidding. It's, it's really a sad state. What's interesting here is that you're doing something very different because I know scholars, for instance, our mutual friend, J.C. Boucher, who will scrape Twitter or try mm -hmm. to scrape other forms of social media where they can actually get the data and, yep. and do it. But I guess with WhatsApp, you simply can't do that. So you've had to basically have researchers go out and just mm -hmm. essentially talk to people and get the information about who they're interacting with. And it, I mean, you, you have to go with your strengths. I'm not a quantitative specialist. I've always been a qualitative specialist and do a lot of, you know, um, interviews, focus groups, surveys I'm very comfortable with. So, you know, you, you use the expertise that you have. JC's got fantastic expertise in, in that um, scraping and, and really doing big models. So there's, a I think, a really interesting role for, of course, as we all know, in research and, and political science, international affairs is that, you know, multi-level situation where we all come at it from different angles. And I think that really contributes to better understanding the issues when we can all do that. Yeah, it wasn't mean this any any criticism. It was just a contrast that that mm -hmm. different kinds of you're asking similar questions, but you're looking at different data, and simply you cannot do what he could do. In fact, actually, JC can't really scrape twenty more either because well, Elon Musk broke it, and so it, it's much harder to actually use that resource. 
Um, machine learning, you can't really use machine learning to get your way through WhatsApp. So you've done this research. What would you tell either the government or civil society organizations now about how to manage the flows of disinformation in this uh, arena? Well, one thing that we were really quite impressed with is that the ethnocultural communities are really aware and want to be allies in the fight against disinformation because, of course, it makes things more difficult for them. And so they're very conscious of it, which I think was really important. In fact, when we approached the ethnocultural community leaders, I made a point of doing that personally and kind of expected some to just say no. Uh, but they all said yes really wanted to help. I mean, really, really wanted to help. So I thought that was really important. It just says a lot about how our ethnocultural communities want to be part of a solution to, to disinformation. And they recognize it. I mean, I think anybody who, again, I can speak for, uh, you know, Middle East Arab, you know, community on WhatsApp. I mean, it's it's pretty incredible the kind of high usage and, uh, and just how important it is to the social life of many ethnocultural members of Canada. So I think there are, there is a really, I think, a fertile ground there for research. And it it, it just like really said a lot about how we need to invest in to researchers to try and find uncover these kinds of um, spaces that are closed but doing so in a really ethical and uh, working with the ethnoculture communities is really important so back to what i would do i mean i think with disinformation there's the very sort of top-handed type regulatory approach which doesn't work really well when it comes to to WhatsApp, obviously. There are some things that WhatsApp has done, like if, some, if a message is forwarded too many times, it'll tell you that. So there are little tweaks here and there, but, you know, um, there's a bit of a whack-a-mole situation with all platforms and that, uh, just like we saw previous years, I mean, what's great about WhatsApp and what at least at one point was its claim to fame was that, it, you know, it was encrypted and, you know, you could have private conversations. And now people are moving to Telegram and to Signal because, of course, those are no longer, I mean, WhatsApp is no longer considered to be completely safe. So it's a bit of a challenge, I think, for, for governments and authorities who see this as a problem. I think digital literacy is really the, the softest approach and that needs to be done. And in fact, what some countries from like Finland, Estonia, the Baltic countries are really ahead of the game on this is, is that they really invest in teaching kids from a young age about digital literacy and about, I mean, even in math class and very young age, they're taught to sort of how to you, you know, fact and fiction, what's opinion. These are conversations that unfortunately kids in the Canadian public system aren't getting until they perhaps get to a, you know, a senior, maybe grade 12 class in, in politics. And so, you know, really bringing in critical thinking skills is important and having conversations about that so that, again, you counter this, in my humble view, in the most, I think, softest approach and making sure society is resilient to it and not try to overregulate it. You said you looked at different ethnocultural communities. Did you find mm -hmm. different patterns either in terms of the misinformation that was being spread or in terms of the response of the community to the misinformation? Yeah, there was some variation. And uh, we're just undergoing the second phase of our study, which is actually a survey of the same ethnocultural communities asking, why do you spread this? And why is this issue important to you? What do you, you know, so we're, we're delving a little deeper. The first set of investigation of the first part of the project was really figuring out what was the information that was being spread. And the second phase is really figuring out why. And, and I've actually brought psychologists to, to help with that framing as well, because we really want to get into the, you know, are you more likely to 
share a meme versus, you know, are you more likely to share a, a link to an article? Just really the method of sharing information it doesn't have to be misinformation, but it can also be just generally people's pattern of, of using these kinds of messaging apps. In terms of the variation, there was some really interesting striking ones. You know, in the case of the Indian Canadian community, there was a lot of, I'd say, you know, BJP propaganda that was coming in. Mm -hmm. A lot of stuff about Ukraine and biolabs. I mean, the biolabs was, you know, the very argument that there are secret biolabs in Ukraine, which of course is not true, was spread very, very wide uh, in the Indian Canadian community. Similarly, in the Arab Canadian community, you know, talking about how this was, you know, that, and this is an opinion, of course, that Putin was goaded into invading in Ukraine, but it's always the substance of the kinds of articles that are being referenced with disinformation. So those are three things or a few things that we noticed, again, in the Chinese Canadian community, a lot about COVID controls and just really playing up how COVID controls in China were just so superior. So those are the, the main themes, I'd say. There were, of course, a lot of other stuff. I mean, we, we captured what I would still think is misinformation or even malinformation, but those were the more prevalent disinformation type observations. So you're contrasting disinformation with malinformation? Is, is that there's a distinction, right? I think this is really important. You know, there's malinformation, which, you know, can sometimes just be really bad opinion, right? I mean, taken to, a, to one degree. And I, I gave you that example of, you know, that Putin was goaded into invading Ukraine. I mean, you know, I mean, Mearsheimer, for God's sakes, makes that argument. So it's hard to say it's malinformation. Certainly the bio, the you know, the biolabs, American biolabs producing, you know, bioweapons is an absolute disinformation. There's an intent there to to harm and to undermine you know the narrative or the the reality of of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine so it differs uh, there are different types but disinformation in particular has an elevated concern in that its uh, intent is to really have mostly a state bias to want to hurt another country and the national security of another country. And certainly, I think we see a lot of that, of course, coming out of many countries. Everybody's really playing this game now to make their policies look good. And, and part of the way this is often done in the Russian case, of course, is you do that by making you know the West look chaotic, divided, polarized, which we are, but playing up on that to just really highlight um, how things are are perverse in the West uh, as a result of that. Well, one of the striking things that you're talking about is something that is old as time, essentially, but, you know, because governments have always been trying to yeah. engage in propaganda, information operations, whatever you want to call it. And so there's sort of two elements here that, that are a little different here. There's the technology and there's the actors. I guess let's do the first part first, the second part second, which is WhatsApp is a particular kind of technology, right? That 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it wasn't available. And so there would be misinformation or disinformation would be spread, but it wouldn't be so quick. And I guess the question is, you know, the speed is obvious, but do people find today a WhatsApp message more or less credible than the rumor mill of however things were spread 30 years ago, whether that was stories that made it into the national news or, you know, uh, newsletters that people would, would share? Is it the, the challenge today that people tend to trust the tech, the stuff they get through technology more than they would? Or is it, or would, you know, again, you weren't doing the research 30 years ago, you were you were just a toddler at the time. So how would you, con con you know, given what you've studied, is it, do you think that people just buy into stuff that they get via electronic 
means, or in particular WhatsApp, more so? Do they? And I guess the other contrast is, do they both buy WhatsApp more than they buy what's on Facebook or Twitter because it seems more personal? So you just hit it on the head right there. It does seem more personal. And so, yes, it is, I think, more potent. Um, and it's also being spread by people you trust. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, uh, the interesting thing. I mean, Facebook, it, it got too big in the sense that you don't have control of it all over anymore for those who are still on Facebook. But I think with WhatsApp, what we found is actually, indeed, it's coming from family members. It's coming from trusted individuals. And also, it's it's a way for news from home country to come here. And so part of, and you can certainly, I think, you know, search the web and, and find, you know, in the case of, you know, my family members, Middle East websites to give you news and so forth, but it's delivered to you right to your quite literal door, not literal, but uh, to your phone. And so I think the medium is important. It, it really is that trust that you get. These are people that you respect, perhaps, you know, visit your home. They're your, they're your close people. And the fact that it's coming in these closed and personal connections with often ethno-cultural community ties does indeed, I think, make it more potent. And it really, I think, was under-researched and under-theorized. And so that's one of the things that we're trying to do now. Now that we've got some empirical evidence is really try to add to the literature and, and understanding why. Why is it? And our hunch was at the beginning through, again, uh, mostly focus groups and trying to understand was really this um, personal dimension uh, and also the deference. Again, it, it gets out of control often because you don't want to tell auntie and uncle X that, you know, this is really garbage stuff that you're sharing. You know, you don't want to say that in these private uh, groups. So things get un unchecked, unmonitored, unresponded to. And so that often makes things worse. So the second thing is, is that in the olden days, it was maybe mostly countries that were doing this to other countries. So the question now is, is, is do you see non-state actors uh, playing a role? I mean, you're looking at these WhatsApp or messages, so you can't really code for who the sender is in terms of the actors behind it. But in studying this, did you get a sense that that there are non-state actors that are in, in this game? And uh, what's your take on that? Well, sometimes we can trace it back to state actors. So if it's an article, we can trace it back to RT, we can trace it back to China Daily. So there are definitely um, links being shared. And sometimes even the messaging, the wording, people take direct quotes, images. And so we did trace back and there was connection to state media outlets. That doesn't mean necessarily that it was coming from the state, you know, propaganda office, although other researchers have found that. So we know that, in fact, um, China and Russia and Iran actually do have dedicated individuals to spread these kinds of messages. And the Russians are really good at it. There's some very interesting manipulation of information, as I said, really trying to sow doubt in legitimacy of our institutions, ultimately, and to really highlight this kind of divisive dialogue. And so that's they've really taken the hook of the cultural wars um, and identity politics as a way to try and create that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's true that, you know, propaganda is as old as ever. I think what's interesting about the new form of propaganda or disinformation online is, as you said, the veracity of it, but also how it's being delivered. It, it, mm -hmm. You know, it's not pamphlets anymore and it's not passive watching that you have to go search out RT. It's coming to you through trusted networks. It's coming to you through friends and family. And that, I think, makes it very interesting in terms of, again, the, the trust factor, right? You, mm -hmm. You're more to listen to someone who you respect and defer. And again, in a lot of ethnocultural communities, that kind of, you know, importance of family and deference to elders 
is really, really strong. And so you don't correct it and things don't get corrected and it gets repeated and forwarded. And so the disinformation can spread very wide. Well, that means that I really need to start distrusting my friends and family who send me messages. I guess that's the take home lesson today. When I'm on social media and, you know, I follow people that I trust, right? I, I choose who uh, is giving me information about politics. And that's the beauty of sort of you can curate it yourself. The interesting thing here is that it's coming to you without, you know, you're not following this group or that group, or you're not in a WhatsApp group because you're expecting politics and disinformation. You're there to hear about the barbecue and, you know, who had a baby. And I mean, that's the good stuff that you want to hear. You're not there to get the disinformation, but the point is it is being used for disinformation and often, again, unregulated, under-theorized and under-researched. Well, I'm glad that you're out there um, doing this research. I think it's really important. There's lots of dimensions to the, the current challenges with disinformation and misinformation. Uh, I know I have been guilty many times of forwarding on things that turn out to be not entirely true. And I'm not speaking of my own research. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just speaking of my time on Twitter and Facebook. But thanks for being with us today, Besma. I know you've got a lot of things to do and you know to go back out in the sun and enjoy it while it's still there. So uh, thanks for your time. It's always a pleasure. And we'll have you on again soon to talk about your next big adventure. Likewise. Thank you. It's a treat. 